Hey, this is George Lopez, and this is Tell Me Your Story, and and I'm honored uh, um, because um, I, I'm I get to interview one of my comedy idols, and truly, I mean, I saw your partner a couple of weeks ago, and in an inebriated state, told him how much I loved him. Oh, but in a sober state, yeah, I I will tell you, Tommy Chong, how much I love you. Oh, I love, I you, love so you too, George. Yeah, you know. I got a thing for Mexicans. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think... Uh, well, Chich was the first Mexican I ever met, you know. <laughs> and so it was weird. I, we used to just look at him and touch him once in a while. You now, know? now back in Canada, right? In, yeah, in Vancouver. Vancouver. You, your, your career, like, what's your earliest memory you think of yourself with a musical instrument? You know, with... Uh, you, oh, were, you were musical oh, before you were a comedian. I go way back. Uh, I guess about eight, eight years old. My, uh, we lived in the country, and uh, and I could play guitar good enough to to uh, play with a fiddle player, and and I was the only guitar player around. So they used to wake me out of bed. They would wake me up, and say, "Come on, we need a guitar player," and I would go and sit in the front room or you know the living room and play right. guitar with the fiddle player, and we'd play all night. Was your father musical? No, he was Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> almost, almost anti-musical. Okay, so, so, so ethnically, your your ethnic background is you're Chinese, and and what what are what are pieces are you? Uh, I'm Ch half Chinese, and then my mother was a waitress. No, she was <laughs> she was a, a Scotch Irish. And then how did you guys end up in Canada? Uh well, we, but my dad was born in Canada. He uh -huh. was born in Vancouver, and my mother was born in Saskatchewan, and they met in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And that was back in the day, you know, when, you know, Chinese and white girls weren't supposed to uh, co-mingle. But they, um, when my mother died, I asked my dad, I said, how, how did you meet? You know, I, I, I never knew the story. And he said that uh, they used to stroll every Sunday in the park. You know, everybody would take the Sunday off. Right. And so the single Chinese guys would hang out at this one area. And then the single white girls mostly ukrainian and scotch irish like yeah. my mother they would walk by the chinese guys and then they would kind of pair up look at each other you know pair up and then that's how they hooked interesting. up interesting that's yeah. interesting that's cool yeah. that's cool so play, playing guitar from that point uh and going to school clearly right yeah um where did the music take you from there well no one knew i played in school you know, I I, I, knew, I wasn't one of those kids, you know, okay, Tommy's going to come up and play his guitar right. for the class. You know, and there was a bunch of them, you know, accordion players and that. Actually, uh, I, I, I started off with the accordion because my cousin, uh, we'd visit him. It, it was another uh, mixed marriage, you know. My, my uncle, he wasn't really my uncle, he was Chinese, and when you're Chinese... Uh, and another Chinese see you, you're related, you know. <laughs> and it, it all came from the immigration. It all came from immigration. Because when they brought Chinese people over, they, they couldn't tell them apart. So they said, oh, no, that's my uncle. And so they, they got everybody in through the immigration. And so my uncle, uh, his son, he was an adopted son, he, he had an accordion. They bought him an accordion wow. when he was a kid. And I used to go over and hang out in his bedroom because he had all the naked uh, magazines. Yeah. He was older. And, and the accordion, I used to sit and play the accordion for, for hours. And that was really my first instrument. But then I, then, I, then I went to Army Cadets when I was about 
13, 14, and I met a, a full-blooded Native Indian who played guitar, and he needed backup. So he, he, him and I would hook up, and then he became an Elvis impersonator. And so then I was his, his uh, backup band. And what gigs would you guys have? <clears throat> well, uh, mostly uh, uh, noontime at, at the high school. Yeah, all right. Uh, noontime I at high school. Yeah. And, and we would get on stage, and I never, I never went to his high school. He, he would call me up, and I would take the bus and over to his high school, and we'd get on stage at, at noontime, and he'd act like Elvis, and the girls would scream. <laughs> and he was a full-blooded, six-foot-one, Sarsi Indian with bad complexion, black hair, and, but he'd put on that white sports jacket, and he'd wiggle his ass like Elvis, and the girls would scream. It was great, man. And he was the one that got me into music. You know, my my first gig with him uh, uh, was in Lethbridge. Was about two hundred miles uh, east of, or south of Calgary. And so my dad, my mother, and dad, they were a big fans. So it was my first professional gig. So they drove us down to the to the gig, and and no one showed up. It was uh, the four uh, four somebody's four black guys yep. singing. The four. Were they famous? Yeah, they were famous. Oh, baby, man, I get so lonely when I dream about you. Whoever sang that song, it was the four of whatevers. And they were, they were headlining, but the promoter, you know, screwed up. No one showed up. And then my, so we, we, played the, we played our part of the show. And then my mom and dad said, oh, the show was great. See you later. And they left. And, and then we were, we were waiting around to get paid. And then we find out the promoters left too. Everybody had left, and here we are, no ride back to Calgary, <laughs> two hundred miles away. <laughs> so, see you later. I love Pop. that your parents left. Like yeah, the show yeah. was over. They cut yeah, out. Yeah, they, they 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 thought I was. They I guess they thought I had a ride with the uh, with the with the Dick the Indian, and so here are Dick and I. We're on the road, uh, hitchhiking, with a guitar amp, and, uh, <laughs> and we and we got we got a ride, and we made it back. That was my first professional gig. But you know, as a as a guy like that, like playing a little bit of accordion, playing guitar like that, not playing in school, which was interesting because usually dudes tried to play to show girls that they could play. Yeah, right? yeah. I but, was the opposite. Yeah, which is interesting because were you shy or just? It was, uh, I, 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 I still don't have the soul of a musician, you know, you know where I want to get up there and, and just play the instrument, you know. But it's I, it was something I could, I could do well enough that other people want me to play along with them. You, you know, know what, it's interesting that you say that, that you didn't have the soul of a, of a musician, because that was going to be my next question, is I thought you had soul, man, because I knew that you could write songs. Oh, yeah, no, I could do it. And that. you spent a lot of time with some very famous musicians. But I was more, uh, even, even, even uh, songwriting, I was more of a poet. I would write lyrics, you know, and, and just lately I've been putting music, my, my kind of music to them, you know. I, I'm, I was never that hooked into music. It was something that, that I could do, and there was a, a need for a backup guitar player. You know, right. it, I had good rhythm. I still got good rhythm, but you know, I, I love dancing more than I love playing, and so I, I became a, a you know like a Lindy Hop dancer. Wow! And that's how I got into the black crowd because all the, the in Calgary all the good dancers were black, 
and and that's how I got my first black girlfriend because you know she saw I could dance, I saw she could dance, and we went in and entered a few contests, won some contests. Cool. You know? And uh, you know that was my life. I didn't know that. And then when then the the black uh, guy, the hero there, he was a football player, of course, Tommy Milton. He was a uh, the star football player. And uh, and he wanted to sing, so he so we formed a band with the Indian, and there was uh, Tommy, the black guy, the Indian, and myself, the uh, half Chinese guys, and we called ourselves the Shades, <laughs> <laughs> the Shades, different Shades. <laughs> and then years later, I, I had a band with with uh, with um, four black guys and myself, and we ended up calling ourselves Four Niggers in a Chink. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that, that name lasted for one, one week. Wait a minute. So you actually, that was on a poster somewhere? That was on the, the, on the marquee. The marquee. Oh. Uh, now appearing, four niggers in a jink. That was funny. And we got, we got, oh. I got press from all over the world, man. They, they were phoning up. Is that true? And I, yeah. And, and, but that night, nobody showed up <laughs> except, except one very large, angry black Rap, woman wrestler Lottie the body I remember her name Lottie the body showed up she sat in the front front seat she's watching the band we're playing she goes right in the middle of the tune she goes I see the niggers but which one where's the, where's the chink <laughs> and so my dad who was Chinese he was working the door he walked over to her and he says you know we don't we don't we don't uh, tolerate that kind of behavior in the club and Lottie the body stood up and grabbed him and body slammed his ass <laughs> She threw over the hip, down. over the hip, bam! She body slammed, and so that's my dad. So I put my guitar down. I went running out there, and she grabbed me, body slammed my <laughs> ass down, and all all my my black buddies on the stage laughing their ass oh. off, man. They're pointing and laughing. Everybody. Then finally, my brother came over and saved both of us, and then we changed the name of the marquee that night. We changed it to uh, Four Color Guys and a Chinese Lad. <laughs> <laughs> it's famous. Oh man, I love all that. I love all that. Now, now, um, back then, you know, one of the things I think I miss, I think everybody's gonna miss now, is that you can't go to really a club and hear music anymore. You no. know, and even around airports, they would book bands. It drive me nuts. And, and bands, you'd go into a hotel after a long day of traveling, and you heard some music. You yeah. heard somebody playing and yeah. somebody singing, and and someone stopped playing. Yeah, that's the most important thing about a band. They're eventually going to stop. You know, but now you go to clubs as disco. The music never stops. They play that shit all the it time. It drives you nuts. Right. It drives me nuts. It's I loud. can't go to discos, yeah. man. Do 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 do. That, that finally, I mean, it just it just drives me crazy. Yeah, it's a little bit. I mean, you know, I I can understand if somebody wants to take X, X and spin around and put pacifier in their mouth and <laughs> listen to some house music and sweat and shit and spend ten dollars for a bottle of water uh, and have a great time that they they won't remember and yeah. hug everybody. You know, I, I get I get it. I get it. Yeah. But also, I also love. It's the one thing that I think that I've never been able to do my whole life is able to be able to play the guitar. I mean, I got so many of them and I love them, but I do miss seeing live musicians play. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I I've been so blessed. Like for, uh, we had a, a jazz scene in, 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 in Canada that was so underground. Big, yes. Very underground, very mm -hmm. underground. And it was uh, no liquor license. And so it was like, 
uh, it was an after hours uh, place where you went and heard jazz. That's where I got turned on to pot and jazz and everything. All who at did the you same see? Time. Name some of the musicians that that you've seen. I sat this close and got to know. I sat this close to Wes Montgomery. He was playing a. Uh, he was probably still is the the greatest guitar player ever, a jazz guitar player. And he was playing at a club in, in Vancouver, and it was all junkies, and they were all passed out, all nodding, you know, the audience. There was about four or five people in the, in the club. Wes was paid to do another set, and so he literally did the set for me. I, I was the only guy that was upright and, and listening. <laughs> and I sat this close to him, to his amp. And then after he played, we sat and chatted for uh, a good hour. And he told me his whole life story, and uh, and I didn't know at the time, but he was—he's a, a big pothead. I didn't know that. I, had I known, I would have uh, turned him on, you know. Yeah. But but you know, uh, and I've met—I I saw John Coltrane at his height when in San Francisco when he was uh, with the trio, uh, the, the drummer, uh, what's his name, uh, Alvin Jones and uh, Jimmy Garrison on bass, and they were so into their music. John Coltrane would play the same tune for an entire set, 45-minute set. And when the, when the tune ended, he wouldn't stop playing. He walked off the stage, walked into the bathroom, still playing. And then they would change the crowd. The crowd would change. Wow. And then a new crowd would come in, and he'd walk back up on, on stage, still playing. Never seen that. Oh. Never heard of anybody doing that. And... Not only that, and the tempo was so fast, you can't even, you couldn't even snap your finger to it. Just this just, just in, insane tempo. And what jazz guys did back then, they would there would be a lot of people that want to play that couldn't play. And so this insane tempo and the changes, you know, the, the chord changes were so hard that it separated th dudes th could th play. these guys wouldn't get on stage. They'd, they'd, they'd leave the stage. Dizzy Gillespie started that off, and they would just get some tune like Caravan or something, you know, count it in real fast, and then turn to the new guy and say, "Okay, go ahead." And the guy would look. <laughs> I literally, they used to say that when Coltrane played, saxophone players would run out of the club screaming, "I can't do this! I quit! I'm never going to play again! Oh, fuck it! I'm done!" Oh. I swear to God, man, I saw that that night. That night, I heard... You saw some, dudes leave the I club. I saw a guy come out of there with his friend. He says, fuck it, I give up, man. I'm never... I'm, I'm, I'm going to take another instrument. I'm going to play another instrument. I can't do that. Because he was, he was that insane. Right. Because he, he had circular breathing, you know, where you can just keep blowing a note and breathe through your nose yeah. and, 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 and use the air in your, in your, in your gut basically and to blow it out and keep that note going and then breathe while he's playing it and and non-stop man mm -hmm. it was insane oh i saw some of the best i saw charlie mingus the wow. bass player yeah. let me tell you the mingus story he was <laughs> he was playing in vancouver and and vancouver's in canada so his, his drummer danny richmond got stopped at the border because of a drug conviction and so they, he wasn't allowed in in the border so Mingus is playing in this little club without a drummer. So he gets on, this, on the mic, and he starts talking, you know, a little preaching, talking about, you know, how screwed up the, the drug laws are and everything else. And all of a sudden, some guy in the back goes, hey, shut up and play. 
Mingus. Ooh. It got real quiet. Mingus looked around and said, who said that? And the guy put his hand up. He said, yeah, I said it. Mingus says, how much does it, to the doorman, how much does it cost to get in this motherfucker? You know, how much? What? Two fifty? What is it? Five dollars? Something like that. He said, okay, give me five dollars. He said, I'm going to give you your money back. And, and if I don't like the way you take it out of my hand, I'm going to run my hand across your chest and snatch out your heart. Oh. <laughs> oh. Wow. And as soon as the guy, he, 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 uh, he took the money very gently, <laughs> he walked out the door, and Mingus says, okay, let's play. He went, went on stage and played the best, the yeah. best jazz ever, man. Yeah. Oh, man. I've, I've seen some. Now, now did you imagine yourself at that time, at that point? Because, you, you know, clearly, I mean, uh, uh, being a poet and writing your music, you know, I, I, I've known the songs that you've written and the things that you've done, direct the movies that you directed. Did you see yourself going into comedy? I, I've always loved comedy. Like I said, I well, who did the people that, that, that you admired back then? Well, they were all jazz guys. Because they, they, they were all jazz They were fucking guys. funny in between songs. Every and, one of the jazz guys. That's why Red Fox would hang out with all the jazz guys. Red Fox was originally a musician. He, he played, uh, uh, what do you call it, bass, that one-string bass. Yeah. And he was a st singing on the street corner. And, and he, he always hung, and Red Fox was another friend. I had an after-hours club uh, that my family owned in, in, in Vancouver, and all the musicians would come after the after-hours, and we'd all hang out there, you know. Like Jose Feliciano used to play a gig in, uh, in, in this little folk club where they lost a shitload of money, you know, because they couldn't afford Jose. Right. And then Jose couldn't wait to get down to my club. And he'd come down with his with his C and I dog and his, his lady, and, and he'd sit there and play all night. He'd play like four or five sets. We had we literally have to say, uh, Jose, uh, it's over. <laughs> There's no one in the club now. <laughs> you know, we got to go home. <laughs> you know, you can stay, but we're going home. <laughs> yeah, and so so you know, th 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 there was a. The, the comedy and Jose was funny. Yeah. He was very funny. Yeah. We, we 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 used to joke all the time. In fact, after I when I did Up and Smoke, man, he, he put a message in. He wanted to get in on on the on the on the soundtrack of that, but we had already had that done. So I never I never got back to Jose. I I, I I'm still can't wait to see him because we we got a big big history because he did that for a couple of years. Right. He would go to, <laughs> get booked in one club and give him plays ours for nothing. But the musicians that I hung with, man, they were funny. Oh, John Hendricks, uh, Hendrick, Lambrick, Hendricks, and Ross. Mm -hmm. Incredibly funny. Timing, like you wouldn't believe. Perfect timing. Jokes. And, and, and funny and real funny. Like funny from the real point of view. Just, just went, 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 from the one, heart. Yeah, one, one musician, he was telling us about this girl, man, I was out in the backyard eating a pussy, man. It was so good. And the guy said, did you fuck her? He said, no, I never had time. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. That's that's yeah. that's, that's yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah, and they saw humor in every situation. You know, every Richard situation. Pryor was very close friends with Miles Davis, and you can yeah. see that how that relationship, how that how that bond, oh. how a mus how a musician, a jazz musician, with that great sense of humor. Because listen, you're up there surviving, so they're talking about what's going on. They're funny amongst each other. 
They're funny in the spot. Oh. They're great opening lines. Oh yeah, and 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 what it is with jazz musicians, they're all about truth. They're all about truth. You can't bullshit, you see. And if you start bullshitting with your music, they they know it. They hear it. You know that's why that's, those right. tempos were so crazy and, and the tunes were so crazy. You know because they they, but if you're legitimate. Now, if you, if you're one, if you could hang hang with the with the with the cats, you know, then wow, you're you're in. But that it was that was like John Henry's, for instance. Uh, I had a another club in in in, in Vancouver that he he played, uh, and and we we played uh, we played alternate sets. Like he'd play one set, and we'd play another set, uh, and we were R and B totally, you know, with Bobby Taylor. But all the jazz guys would sit and listen to our set, and we'd sit and listen to their set right. because it was the same. And John Hendricks really kind of showed me how to get high before a gig. He would take tiny little pieces, of, bits of, of hash, and then he'd take a, a filter cigarette and take all the tobacco out and just put the hash at the end of the, the filter and then just take, a, take a, a, one big toke, you know, one little toke, and that gave him enough... THC in a system to do do all those great yeah. lyrics and saying and and have that joy and have that love and and have that energy, but he never you know, did too much, never did too it, little. It, Just it's right. it's funny, you know. I, I, now now we've gotten into this straight society, man. Where dudes, oh no, I'd, I'd never have a drink or I'd never take a hit before doing a show. Uh, and in talking to Snoop, Snoop Snoop said it's not a drug; it's a compliment. And, yeah. and and I and I, I I thought you know what he, he's right it's a compliment like you said he yeah. he had enough just to get him in the right place yeah 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 you know what it does what pot really does it focuses you on to one thing that's what people get you know it gives you new thoughts because a lot of people get they they they, they get uneasy because they're you they're used to thinking the same thoughts. And so when, when you get a, something in your system that takes you right out of there, where all of a sudden you're seeing, a, say, a room for the first time, or a door, or you're driving <laughs> home, and all of a sudden you look around, and you say, I don't remember the trees <laughs> being there. I don't remember that house. You know, All of a sudden, it, it, it opens new parts of your, of your brain, you know, yeah. that unexplored parts. And and that's what uh, that's what uh, uh, we as artists, you know, as comedians, you know, that's what we do. But in in, in the early in the early 1900s, people they used weed, man. They made tinctures out of it. They 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 separated sativa and the indica, and they used they prescribed it sure. to to people. And and um, so clearly, uh, it has a, a a long history. Oh, Chinese have been doing it for five thousand years. Yes, yeah. I mean it's so so normal in Indonesia. Uh, you know they got a death sentence against foreigners uh, dealing drugs or using drugs, but the the locals are allowed to do what they've done for centuries, which is cook with it, or eat with it, and use it as medicine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the same weed. And what, what, why why do you think that we're so so afraid of it um, in this country? Well, it's that phony judo Christian attitude that we have, that that that. That, that took over, you know, the Puritans. They, they took over where anything that feels good is, you know, against God's will. 
You know, yeah. That what they did, and 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 they, they were the ones that that put all the bullshit in the Bible. You know that what you know wasn't there. You know, just like the 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 Romans uh, took over the Christianity. You know, and, and so instead of worshiping their gods, they worshiped Jesus like he was a Roman god. You know, it, it, it's it's, and then they subvert their own. See, the, 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 there's a spiritual law that never changes, and that's what Jesus taught, that's what uh, Muhammad taught, that's what Buddha taught. They all teach this uh, universal truth. And when you subvert the truth for your own gain, then you, you are going against the universal truth. Right. The minute you say that I'm better than you, it's a lie. Mm -hmm. That's a lie. Mm -hmm. That is a total lie. And... Uh, and, and that's what America has been founded on. We've been founded on all these lies, sure. you know, and they, they turn it into racial. Well, just like the weed, as long as it was called hemp, it was mandatory. You had to grow it. You had to use it because you made rope, you made canvas, you made paper, you made all these great things out of this hemp. But the minute it was used to get high and to enjoy yourself, Right. All of a sudden, they had to demonize it and call it marijuana. <laughs> marijuana right. is just another Mexican word for hemp. Right. But right. they had to demonize it, like they did with the opium. Uh, the Chinese were, 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 were uh, doing opium and, and, and bringing it over. And, and, and uh, you know, all of a sudden, that's where the Chinese exclusion law came into being and all that. You know, it's very racial. And, and the British, <laughs> you know, the British... The, the heroin they they wanted to keep that heroin war going right know? they had sure. that, that war you know so so there was a big racial thing going on you know the white the supremacy uh, movement is based on on this stereotype bullshit that that Christians certain Christians will look in the Bible until they find something that that justifies their 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 actions when when Cheech and Chong first first started and you started to put it together and you started to get some attention it pro it was very revolutionary at that time yeah for two cats to be playing music and doing skits and talking about weed well you know what it was we made the Mexican the hero right we made the, the the low rider the hero. Right. And 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 my character was anybody. My character was the rich kid, the rich kid that that grew his hair long and hung with hung with the low rider. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we made the two lowest denominators in the country <laughs> heroes. Yeah. And the thing was, there's more uh, Cheech and Chongs than there are the others. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. It really was brilliant. I mean. From from um, if you look at duos, if you look at Abbott and Costello, uh, you look at uh, Laurel and Hardy, and then in our Martin time, and Lewis. Martin and Lewis, yeah. uh, uh, Cheech and Chong, um, the impact that you guys ha have had and will continue to have um, is is I will say beyond. I mean, Laurel and Hardy were great. I'm not sure how much play their movies get. But I know I, I know what you guys uh, continue to do, and the movies that people continue to watch. Oh yeah, and uh, it, it's 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 a testament, man, to 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 again sticking to a philosophy yeah. and a universal truth that that uh, should have never should never change. Yeah, and that's where you found it, the biggest success. Yeah, it, it can change. The thing is with with with, with Cheech. 
you know, I, I, I kind of took a page out of Chaplin. I read Chaplin's biography in, in, in Charlie Chaplin, and he said he 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 could do so many things. He he could sing. He could he could uh, he was a English music uh, hall genius, you know. And he could do all these impersonations and everything else. But it wasn't until he found the tramp that everybody could look down on and feel good about themselves because he was the lowest con- common denominator. Right. And then, and then with Cheech and Chong, I realized, yeah, that's where it's at, you know? That, because when, when, when your biggest problem <laughs> is, is looking for a joint <laughs> to, to get high to be in a, in, in a, in a battle of the band, <laughs> and you're riding around in a band made out of pot, looking for weed, right. I mean, that's, that's the height of, of uh, joy. I just saw it. I mean, it's one of my favorites. Uh, I just saw it on Comedy Central, and and it, it is almost a visual painting. It's visual art that every time you see it, you see something different. Yeah, the little things, the little things, the little haircut in the beginning, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the little Mexican haircut. See, I had to dig that out of Cheech. I, you know, when I when I met Cheech, I didn't even like I, I said I didn't know he was Mexican. He was this college educated uh, guy that that you know knew a lot of things about a lot of lot of lot of things. And it wasn't until we got to to L.A. that that uh, we pl- we played a club and, and it was a dance club, and the first set we did. It went went over a so-so mm-hmm. because they, they they were dancers. They wanted to dance. They didn't want to sit and watch comedy. And so we had another show to do, and so we're backstage, and I said to Cheech, I said, there's got to be a character or something. I mean, you're from here, so there's got to be a character that these people can relate to. And Cheech, as sharp as as he is, he he really is a genius. He's very genius. He said, well, there is one, but I I hate to do it. And I said, why? He said, well, because it's kind of detrimental to to the Chicanos. I said, well, that's what we're in business for. That's what we want. <laughs> that's what we're looking for. And so I said, what is it? He's well, he's like a, a, a low rider. And I said, what's a low rider? He said, well, you know, you see him, Chicanos, you know, they drive their cars, you know, they're real low. Oh, and I said, oh, I, because I had, the, I had a bit that I, I watched a, a black co- comedian do years, years ago before I met Cheech. Sir Pineapple was his name. And what he did, he did this, it was like a, a stock bit that a lot of black uh, comedians do, where they'd mime driving uh, to, to pick up a girl. And then they'd pick up, knock on the door, and they pick up the girl, and then and they get her in the car, and they try to get her to drink, and, yeah. and, and then she's drinking too much, and, and it's all mimed. But there was one part of the act where he would wash the car, so you could kind of mime the car. You'd see where, where the car was in, in the mime. And so I, I showed it to Cheech that, that night. I said, a little bit. I said, Just pretend you're washing the car. And he picked it up right away. And so he goes out there, and he used his, did he use his beanie? No, I think he used a, a handkerchief. Oh, he, he had a headband then, I think. Yeah. He borrowed a headband, and he, and he does his headband, and, he, and he, he does this whole thing washing the car, and then he tied the headband on. 
And by the time he finished doing the, the car bit, the audience was just so in his palm of his hands. Right. You know? And then when he's driving along, and saying, oh, hey, oh, hey, 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 Red Freak, you want a ride, baby? You know? <laughs> yeah. And then I come running out. And, and for I wasn't in a dress like a girl at the time. It was just, I was just me with a headband. And I came out and uh, so hey, where are you going, man? You know? And, and then he drives real fast and you know oh the end of the block be fine man and then then we we smoke a joint together that bit changed our lives it was unbelievable it's, it's really unbelievable it's a it, it's it, in i can't say that it's simple because it, it it is it has to come together with two of the with two perfect pieces yeah. I, I mean no one person could have done it alone no. e- even as a comedian trying to play that he's doing all of that couldn't do it no it is a textbook master piece of comedy. Yeah. And yeah. like you said, it changed your life. Yeah. And it, and it went, we, we figure out that that bit went from like a five minute bit, if two or three minute bit, ended up being a movie. Ended up being, <laughs> being, 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 the, being the centerpiece of the movie. Yeah. Because a lot of people, when they watch Up and Smoke, they watch it up to that point. Right, where 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 we get? Am I driving okay? Yeah, I think we're parked. Park. They 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 watch it up to that point because I, I I remember this this uh, Korean kid, Eddie took me over to his house one time and he had it on his uh, computer and he he showed me the part and then he, right up to that part then he says okay let's go <laughs> yeah but you know what Tommy though every everything about what you guys did I mean from Big Bamboo with the rolling paper in the album which is unbelievable really think about it the genius of creating a comedy album and then putting rolling paper in with the logo of of a the giant, album ro- a giant rolling paper a giant yeah. rolling paper yeah. in it yeah. uh, and then you know we're looking up on the wall here the wedding album and Los Cochinos I mean it's all all very the art, the artwork of it was yeah. very well thought out Lou Adler we, we have to give credit to Lou Adler because after Cheech and I discovered Cheech and Chong we struggled. We struggled mightily uh, all through this town. And we were with a few uh, management companies, you know, like we were with uh, the guy that managed Zappa, I forget his name. Uh, then we were with the Three Dog Night people. Right. And they couldn't do anything for us. Were they trying to sell you guys as music or they, music, nothing, comedy? Nothing. You know, managers, what they do, they let you do the work and they'll take the percentage right. you know and if it gets to the point where you're 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 doing good then they'll say hey you know uh, but Lou Adler when we met Lou he saw us at the Troubadour a couple of times and then we heard that he was there in fact that was the night Zappa was there and Zappa really you teach, teach every once in a while Cheech will say you know think that Zappa was a fan but I was I was there man Zappa was not a fan he did not <laughs> he did not appreciate Cheech and Chong because we out Zappa Zappa <laughs> right we out Zappa him right because he was this Jewish guy doing Chicano bits right and now here we come along with a real Chicano and we out Zappa him and and he wasn't happy, and so he he he. I remember we, he was walking ahead of us, and we uh, with his manager, and we we hey, and then he stopped. And he was, how are you doing? Boom. He never said nice show and nothing like that. He just yeah. And then he left. But Lou Adler was there, and Lou. And I didn't know who Lou Adler was, and she says, uh, "Well, Lou Adler." And I said, "Well, he, he'd like to meet us." I said, "Oh, I'd like to meet him too." You know, so we went down to his his office. And 
Cheech and I had never talked about what we were asking or what we were meeting about. And Lou says, so what can I do for you guys? You know? And I looked at the gold records. I said, well, we want to make a record. He goes, okay, what do you need? And I said, $1,000 and uh, a little tape recorder. And Lou calls Cheryl in, his secretary, and says, make a check out. And I says, make that $2,000. <laughs> There's two of us. <laughs> and he says, okay. Wow. We got 1000 each. To us, that was a fortune. That was a fortune. Right. And, uh, and we got the little tape recorder. And, but Lou Adler was the one that he, he, he was raised in Boyle Heights. And so he was around Chicanos yeah, all yeah, his life. Yes, absolutely. He was the one that, that recognized the humor. And, and, he, and then he also recognized, and then we started doing, the, the first record we did was an accident, too, because uh, we took the little tape recorder and we went into a little mix-down room and uh, we're going to practice. And so Cheech put on all the outfits, you know, that he had, his hat, the overcoat and everything. And he goes outside and the door locks for me inside. And he's out in the courtyard in the sun. <laughs> it must be 120 <laughs> degrees out there. And he's out there. And so I got the tape recorder set up and he knocks on the door. <laughs> and when he knocked, I wasn't sure if, if the tape recorder was, uh, was going on because I looked at the door. As soon as he knocked, I looked at the door. And then I said, uh, who is it? And he says, it's me, man. Uh, I got the stuff. Let me in. <laughs> so then I'm staring at the tape recorder thinking, is it on? Did it record or what? And he knocked again. And then I saw the needle jump. Do, 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 do. And I said, oh, it's on. So I, so I said, well, we'll start the bit again. So I said, who is it? And I could hear in his voice. He, he's annoyed. What do you mean, who is it? It's me, man. I got the stuff. Let me in. I think the cops on me. <laughs> so then I just waited. I waited. And he knocked again. And then I said again, who is it? And this time he's mad. It's Dave, man. Open up. And I said, Dave? He said, yeah, Dave. And then I said, Dave's not here. <laughs> he fucking blew it, man. He said, I'm Dave, man. Now open up. It's fucking hot out here, man. I'm dying. So I opened the door and he said, what are you doing? He's throwing his hat off, his coat off. <laughs> I said, come here, listen, listen, listen. I played it back. We must have sat in that room for an hour, playing it back, playing it back, over and over and over again. Laughed our ass off. We laughed so hard because we could, you could hear how mad he was, you know, and how, <laughs> how I, I got him. And then we took it to Lou. And, and everybody in the office, everybody, I, we played it for everybody. And then Lou said, okay, we'll record that tonight. It, the truth was we had it recorded. Right. That was it. That was the best that one. That was it. But we recorded the one that's on the radio. We went to a studio, had a big ass studio and everything else. We did the same thing. It was, it, it was good, but it never really had that, that, that desperation thing. And I don't know whatever happened to the original, but, but we did that bit, and then we, we did a, a, a Blind Melon Chillin' bit right, right after that. And, and, and we write as we go, you know. We, we don't write beforehand. But you guys were like, I saw that where you said something. You guys were all like first take dudes. Like yeah. you just wanted the, the spontaneity of. Yeah. And I think with uh, Dave's Not Here, the best one was the first one. The first one, by far. By far. Then you're not overthinking it or saying, "Ah, oh, let me try this." Or, yeah, it, 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 it's 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 its own natural intent. Well, the Japanese have a saying that you can sharpen a knife until it's dull. 
you know. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you got to stop. There's a certain point in in everything in all of art, modern art, music, where you got to stop. That's good. Don't fuck it up. Right. Leave it right there. All overdone now. I think a lot of things are way overproduced. Yeah. Um, you see movies all the time. You can see where they they're going. All of a sudden, oh, they change it. You know, they they want they want to put this in, that in. You know. One like, of the things I think is brilliant, and I'm I'm not sure when it was recorded, but the Santa Claus. Uh, yeah. Pieces. One take. As, as a masterpiece as well. One take. It was the same year. Same year. Uh, we did everything. It, come Christmas, and I wanted to do a Christmas thing every year. I said, okay, let's let's do. I want to do Christmas thing, and I want to do a Halloween thing. I wanted to, every year we we're going to do a new Christmas bit, but we did that Christmas bit and we forgot about it. It plays every year like clock. Well, I'll tell you what. I think it's one of the. I mean, you guys have done a lot of amazing things. I, I think it's one thing that doesn't get as much love as some of the other pieces, which are pretty amazing. Eric, my eye, Alice Bowie, for all the things from the movies, but the the, the Santa Claus pieces. Is, is a masterpiece. A little bit more for Santa, a little bit more for Santa. Yeah. We do that on stage now, and Cheech is uh, so brilliant. So brilliant with that. Man. He, Let me ask you something, because I, I, I didn't get to know you guys until the late 80s, but the time that, um, that you and Cheech spent apart, um, how much did you think about uh, getting back together? Where, where was your mind, where was your head at during that time? Cheech broke my heart. He broke my heart when we were right at the peak. and uh, But I was living in Europe. I, I, I understand why it happened. I was living in Europe, and uh, he was getting divorced from his uh, first wife. And uh, he, he, he just wanted to change it. Like, like you know, Cheech has got uh, sort of an intellectual ADD, you know. Mm -hmm. He can only concentrate on certain things that, that interest him, you know. And... Uh, and the the movies and he kind of and rightly so the movies had run their course we we came to the Corsican brothers we did one movie without dope and and that was like our, the end of the rope yeah for for Cheech and Chong and that was Corsican I was, brothers Corsican brothers the Corsican brothers mm -hmm. I, I was ready to go and I I I became kind of a tyrant you know I was a director and the writer of Corsican Brothers and I basically other than you know the funny things that Cheech I always put in you know like the horse going sticking his arm up the horse's ass you know that was pure Cheech all right. the good hu humor in 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 the in the movie was you know very very uh, Cheech like but I I had the the job of directing and and I was making director choices you know where to shoot the movie for instance you know, I, I, I made that choice. I made, I, I, I became more or less a, a real director, but a kind of a tyrant, you know. And, and I wouldn't, before that, you know, Cheech and I were, we're, we were brothers, you know, but at the Corsican Brothers, it kind of, that only with Only with him or overall with everybody? Because, you know, in talking to Cheech, it, it, he said the dynamic was almost always like big brother, little brother. Yeah. Um, so especially then, yeah. And so if you were um, hard on, were you harder on Cheech than everyone else, or you were just hard on everybody? I, at the time, at the Corsican Brothers, I was kind of hard on everybody. You know, it was wasn't just Cheech. And there was a lot of things. You know, first of all, it was a big budget movie, right? And the, and then we never had the dope thing in there. See? And I think that that took us apart because we really became other characters. And and in the Corsican Brothers, we break up. 
We break up, mm-hmm. and and in the in the Corsi brothers, I, I'm I'm a revolutionary that's always looking for the fight. And Cheech says, oh, "Man, what? Are you, why are you always looking for a fight? You know, why can't we just you know live our life in peace? You know." And it's no, you know, it's a revolution. You know, and so I was I always I, I still do to this day. You know, I'm always the activist. You know, mm-hmm. trying right. to trying to trying to do that. And Cheech just got tired. You know, he he just got tired of it. And so when we 